Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. I guess I can call myself a historian of statistics or at least hopefully by the time I finish this dissertation I'm trying to write. And as such, I can recall my earliest experience with statistical concepts. We learned what an average was through the example of RBIs, or runs batted in, as a measure of a baseball player's value to a team. Now, as a kid, I spent more time staring at my cleats in the outfield than really paying attention to runs scored, and eight-year-olds don't hit all that hard. So the concept itself kind of troubled me. We all knew who was good, but this was more a measure of third grade social capital, projected confidence, or whose dads were the coaches than any kind of rigorous record keeping. This introduction is beginning to sound like the confessions of a baseball skeptic, but I've set up the basic themes that are relevant here. In Scouting and Scoring, How We Know What We Know About Baseball, published in 2019 by Princeton University Press, historian of science Chris Phillips scores a double. While using baseball scouts and numbers-driven sabermetricians to illustrate the perpetual tension between intuition and evaluation, he provides a compelling history of baseball's professionalization and development. In a word, it's a money ball, the Michael Lewis bestseller that spawned a Brad Pitt starring film, for the historically curious and metrically skeptical. Baseball has been deeply impacted by the expansion of metrics and standards in the modern Western world, and was often at the leading edge of the movement. Stealing second base? I'm trying my luck with puns here. Fortunately, Phillips himself is more of a baseball fan than I. First of all, I should acknowledge that I actually do like baseball, so that makes it a little easier uh, to approach the topic that way. But honestly, it didn't come out of a passion project for the sport itself. What I was doing is looking around at a variety of fields, actually, where mathematics was supposed to have entirely changed the way people operate, the way people know uh, facts, the way people think about the subject. And baseball, to me, is one of the most paradigmatic examples for that in the 21st century, partly because of the success of the book uh, Moneyball and film that resulted from it, the book originally by Michael Lewis, and partly, I think, because it's, it's an arena in which everyone is familiar with questions of quality how we know excellence, how we predict who will be excellent. And so actually the 
reason why I ended up focusing on it was that it seemed a way where I could connect uh, a consequential popular area to historians of science more familiar with kind of more academic approaches. And at the same time, frankly, introduce our field, uh, history of science, science, technology, and society, um, more broadly to uh, baseball fans who may actually have quite sophisticated knowledge of quantification of data in that context, but might not have thought about it more broadly. So it seemed like a really nice way to bring these two communities together. And frankly, it's also just a fun topic uh, to, to, to write about. Baseball was on the front lines of the statistical revolution in more ways than you might think. Phillips talked about baseball's emergence at a unique moment in history, but urged caution at claims that the sport was made for mathematization. It was a forerunner in many different ways. So one way is is possibly just a contingent or chance um, happening, which is that baseball was formalized around the same time of the statistical explosion of the 19th century. In the 1830s and 40s, the famous uh, in-hacking avalanche of statistics or avalanche of printed numbers era is the same era in which baseball's rules were formalized. As a game, of course, it goes back further than that. But nevertheless, as a, as a formal uh, and certainly professional practice, it dates to the mid-19th century. And so there's this overlap where the reformers who are trying to improve the game, the reformers who are trying to shape the game, are living in a world in which statistics and data are said to be the way to improve society, the way to make it more moral, to make it more scientific, uh, to make it better in short. And so baseball has this overlap with a mid-19th century moment that proved uh, hugely consequential to the game, which is to say formal modes of record keeping, of scorekeeping were a part of the game from the very beginning. The idea that the way you evaluate the best players is by collecting data on their performance was there from the very beginning. And over time, of course, people have tried to make it more and more scientific in different ways, whether that's uh, using uh, physics or psychology or other modes of, of scientific analysis. But the fact of the matter is that baseball does go back in this way to this uh, important uh, epoch in history of statistics. With that said, I, I, I have to kind of also acknowledge that there are some scholars who think baseball in and of itself is this kind of perfect quantified sport. So sometimes you hear the, the quantified pastoral. It's like taking numbers into the field, and it's this perfect American uh, sport. I tend to find that to be uh, not really historically grounded. Uh, for one thing, cricket, for example, which is a, an important precursor of baseball in many ways, also had heavily statistical analysis, and that's very British, very much not uh, a kind of classic American sport. So I find it to be a little bit problematic, those kinds of claims, but there is some truth to the fact that a sport that came of age uh, in a heavily statistical era then bears that mark throughout its uh, history. I started us off by asking Phillips about the scouts in all their tobacco-chewing, pot-bellied, washed-up male glory, and what their perspective is on experience and the practice of judgment. It turns out, that their jobs entail quite a lot of bureaucracy and regimentation, dare I say, datification. 
Yeah, so the stereotype of the scout, I think a lot of people are familiar with this, at least in broad form. The stereotype is that you have these men, and they're always men. They're often overweight. They're often middle-aged. They're often white. Uh, They sit on the side of the baseball field. They have hats. They have radar guns sometimes, although people don't think too much about that. But nevertheless, they sit and they watch young players play, and that's what they do. And then they talk to their buddies uh, they chew their tobacco. They they talk about their long experience. They talk about how many boys they've seen. That's the language they use for prospects is boys. And, and then they just anoint a handful of the players as ultimately future stars. And if you ask them why so-and-so is a future star, they tend to say, well, they have the right body type. They, have, they look good. They project well. And you get this kind of... Uh, deference to an internal subjective expertise and experience laden description. And so you can imagine if, if that's how multi-million dollar decisions are being made, there's a lot to criticize there as a stereotype. And indeed, uh, you know, in, in many regards, the quantifiers saw themselves as fighting this kind of entrenched expertise or entrenched uh, experience-based judgments, and certainly subjective judgments at that. What I did, though, was I didn't ask scouts who they were, and I didn't take their self-presentation as given. Instead, what I did was actually look at what their jobs entailed. And what their jobs actually entail is that they fill out reports for clubs And those reports require them to actually quantify in quite precise terms the future value of players. And so what they do as a practical matter, although they never describe what they do this way, I've read many memoirs of scouts where they never mention this fact in the entire 300-page memoir, but what they do is create data on who players are, what their skills are, what their skills are likely to become. And then that data not only can predict uh, how good players might be in the future, but then can be used to judge how good the scouts themselves are. So they produce this, this uh, mass of data across many players in a season and across thousands of players over the course of a scout's career. And then that data is used by clubs, by teams, to make consequential decisions about which players to hire. So it's a distinction between this kind of stereotype and a stereotype that I think, in fact, a lot of the scouts uh, have themselves absorbed uh, or at least portray themselves as, and in fact, what they actually do on the ground. So with all that in mind, the question emerges, why have scouts persisted? It turns out that the amateur scouts Phillips studies add quite a lot of value to their profession, both because the players they scout are coming from a different sample than the major leagues, and also because they look at more than simply events during gameplay, allowing them to make judgments about potential. So the the scouts I I focus on are amateur scouts, and I should make that distinction clear, because there's also advanced scouts who actually go ahead and see future opponents of a team, and then there are... um, uh, professional scouts who, who look at other teams, uh, professional players for potential acquisition. But the, I focus on amateur scouts because supposedly they're the farthest from the data-driven uh, emphasis of modern baseball. 
And then they look at players who are not currently professional players, who are amateurs. So the scouts look at amateurs. They're not themselves amateur, of course, but they're called amateur scouts for that reason. And the claim I want to make is is twofold. The first is that actually uh, it's pretty clear they have value because if teams could fire them all, they would have a long time ago. And part of the value they give is that data from amateur players is essentially useless, kind of classical playing data. If you're being evaluated to play professional baseball at a high school or college level, you are better than everyone else on that field you're playing with. To such an extent that your playing statistics should be amazing. You shouldn't even be competitive. Or alternatively, you have a body that will develop into a high, um, high prospect player at the major league level. And so even if your playing statistics are not good, you may develop into somebody who will have uh, excellent statistics in the future. So the kind of classic idea of statistics-driven decisions, taking playing statistics, isn't actually that useful for uh, many cases at the amateur level. But the second part that I wanted to emphasize about this point is that actually in many regards, they're more aggressive quantifiers than the so-called quants themselves. And that is that their job is to take a player, to take a body in space and time and to turn him, in almost every case, it's always him, to turn him into a single number Uh, and And they do this by creating a a metric by which they evaluate a set of skills. They have a, quote, formula for judgment. And they take all this to turn it into a single number that they call the overall future potential. And so in many regards, what they're doing is actually replacing the complexity of a body with a single number. They're not counting performance statistics. They're not counting hits. They're not trying to create regression equations. They're actually replacing bodies by number. And that, that in many regards, is actually a much more interesting and complicated process than simply counting or uh, running a regression equation. With all this talk about valuation and OFPs, what is it that Moneyball, or Sabermetrics, is all about? Much of it has to do with explaining what value a player might add to a team. In other words, the scouts and scorers have different quantitative practices. That's right. So one, one way to think about it is that in the, the classic uh, scouting versus scoring divide, on the scorer side, on the Moneyball side, on the uh, the sabermetric side, as they sometimes refer to themselves, what they're interested in is trying to figure out a measure of performance that will enable value to be calculated. So, for example, you try and turn a player's overall contribution to a team into, say, a number of runs that he would add to the team. So you would take his total defensive ability, his total offensive ability. You'd find a way to take all his performance statistics Uh, and turn them into a single number, as in how many runs or how many wins a player contributes or uh, to a team over the course of a season or to a course of a career. That's the basic idea. But what the scouts are interested in is actually not how many runs, say, a player will contribute to a team, but trying to figure out what an overall value of that body will be in the future. Because what you're trying to do is actually sign players to contracts. You're trying to sign, uh, say, an 18-year-old 
or a 20-year-old player to a contract that's only going to pay off three, five, seven years down the road and may never pay off at all. So what you're trying to do is, is look at a body and figure out how can I quantify that set of skills? How can I quantify a player's psychology? How can I quantify a player's uh, bodily development over time or, or just his skill set, say, to make a prediction about what a player will be worth at peak performance three, five, seven years down the road? And as you can imagine, there are lots of variables involved here. There's uh, how someone's health might change over time. There's whether or not they can uh, learn from coaches over time, whether or not they uh, will become a better player in kind of skill-wise over time, etc. And so it's an incredibly difficult job. But what I wanted to emphasize is that in order to complete the job, they also use numbers. They also use mathematical models. So it's not a kind of numbers versus experience or objectivity versus subjectivity. Both groups there essentially turn players into numbers in order to make uh, judgments about quality. On this podcast, I've talked with other authors about the history of human capital and chattel slavery, the racialized practice of pricing bodies. Phillips addresses these very same themes of property through the history of baseball. Well, it, it doesn't just connect. It's, it's explicitly in the same vein as, as those kinds of uh, quantification practices. So if you think of uh, Kevin Rosenthal's work on the quantification of slave bodies, players, baseball players, black and white alike, have used that language. So John Montgomery Ward in 1887, uh, a white baseball player, uh, complained that baseball players were being treated as chattel, uh, being essentially treated as property. Uh, and Kurt Flood, a century later, 1969, made the same case, and, and in his case, as an African-American player who was rejecting a particular trade. And the language of property is used explicitly. So somebody will say, well, this boy is Cleveland property. Uh, this boy should be purchased from Cleveland for a certain amount of money. Uh, but, you know, Cleveland likes its property to be uh, held for a long time. So that kind of language of property, of, of pricing bodies, is explicitly used uh, in, in, in baseball. Now, with that said, it's important to note that baseball players are not slaves, uh, that in most cases, in fact, uh, they do have some control over their own labor, uh, as, of course, uh, um, Johnson and others have, have determined with uh, slave marketplaces and kind of the way uh, value, uh, even in horrific circumstances, uh, human beings can exercise some autonomy over their own value of their labor. Uh, and baseball players had a lot more power to do that than, of course, uh, 19th century enslaved persons. But nevertheless, I, I think that language of a kind of 19th century practice of pricing the future labor and the current labor of bodies runs through this all the way uh, from the past. And, and you see certain uh, hints of that at, at different moments, more or less explicitly. Uh, but there's no doubt that that, that uh, strain is there the whole time. One of the big stories in the history of science in the late 19th century is the rise of institutions, which is one of the major developments in the early history of baseball. It turns out that deciding the difference between a hit and an error was a matter of asserting the right kind of person to distinguish between the two. Who was responsible for this changed 
over the history of baseball. So I begin by, by the, the dirty little secret at the, at the core of baseball statistics, which is that one of the most basic statistics is how many hits players have. Couldn't be simpler. But nevertheless, every single hit uh, that is made that is not, say, a boundary object, so it doesn't go out of the field or, and, and count for a home run, say, uh, but is rather on, you know, kind of in play, so to speak, a judgment has to be made by a human being as to whether that particular base runner got on base due to a credit uh, for the hitter, that is to say it's a hit, or a debit to the fielder, that is to say error. And so this subjective judgment, although the vast majority of times it is easy to make, say, is nevertheless at the heart of one of the most central statistics in baseball. And so I wanted to look at the history of how these people make that decision. And one of the strategies is to, of course, choose who those people are. And that goes to your point about this kind of gentlemanly credit. So originally, the idea was that you should have gentlemen make that distinction between hits and errors for the same reason that gentlemen are the members of the Royal Society, that gentlemen are the right sort of people to do science more broadly. That is to say, they're insulated from base interests. They're not going to be bought off. They, in fact, have the intellect and the emotional maturity. Uh, and, and by using gentlemen, they meant both gentle, as in wealthy, and man, as in not female. And so they mean it in both senses, uh, that they're gentlemen able to kind of control their emotions, to make decisions under pressure, and to ascertain who deserves credit in the situation. Over time, though, it actually shifts, and people have different ideas about who should score. So by the early 20th century, it turned out there was maybe a shortage of gentlemen. Uh, and so they, they turned to newspaper reporters as a classic paragon of factual reporting, that maybe newspaper reporters could be the, the ones to uh, keep track of hits versus errors. It did not escape notice that, of course, baseball reporters are already at the parks. So you don't have to pay them very much to keep track of this kind of data. And so they're cheap and they tend to be knowledgeable about the game. But even newspaper reporters over time uh, cease to be uh, in, in ready supply, in part because newspaper owners didn't want their reporters creating news and then reporting on the news. And so uh, they were eventually prohibited in large uh, case by the 1970s, from, by the late 1970s, from scoring. And then the leagues turned to independent contractors. And so now these are folks who have no credentials, in a sense, uh, and so the method by which they create objective statistics or reliable statistics has to be different. And so who scores is kind of one big category for thinking about this. Uh, another category for thinking about it is training, actually training people to score well. And it turned out that this is actually really hard to do. People have tried to do it for 150 years to kind of lay down these standards for credit and standards for judgment. But essentially, they failed to create any kind of agreement. So even 10 years ago, you get a set of scores in one room, official scores, experienced scores, and they'll disagree on what the call should be. It turns out to be very hard to specify written rules for making judgments. Historians of science are, of course, very familiar with this. It turns out to be very hard to specify written rules for creating knowledge, even in situations that are supposed to be universal, logical, fact-based, etc. Uh, but, but they had to discover it for themselves over in baseball. 
And then the final strategy that you uh, alluded to is indeed the right one, which is to say a kind of bureaucratic uh, sense of objectivity or bureaucratic objectivity, as some of the scholars on, on objectivity have begun to kind of formalize it, which is to say objectivity comes not from your personal charisma, not from your personal training, but rather from your bureaucratic role, your role in a structure. And this is the way to think about modern scoring. You have essentially nameless, uh, faceless individuals who make judgments on whether something should be uh, credited to which player. And then that judgment moves up the bureaucratic chain. And so it can be appealed at various times. They're hired by the leagues and ultimately their decisions are backed by the league. Because if you disagree with the decision that a scorer has made, if you're a hitter, say, and you're a little angry that you didn't get credit for a particular batted ball, you can appeal it to the commissioner of baseball or the commissioner's office. And then there's a process by which that office will verify uh, or support or change a particular ruling. And so in this sense, the actual people involved seem to be irrelevant uh, on some level, and the judgment is, is emerges from a bureaucracy, not from an individual. It's died down a bit in popular discussion, but one of the most interesting trends the last few years has been the resurgent interest in self-quantification, something historians of science have shown dates back at least to 19th century astronomy, or even monastic observation practices. I asked Phillips how baseball players understand themselves through these metrics. It's a good question. So it's a little hard, uh, as historians of science also have discovered, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to suss out historically the way people have responded to uh, these kinds of transitions. Uh, they, some, sometimes they respond in ways that are that are invisible, at least, or seemingly invisible to the historian. But I found a couple of moments where you can see this awareness quite clearly. So one is actually not with players, it's with scouts. And that scouts by the 1980s start complaining about how quantified their world is. They say, we all we're doing is filling out reports and putting down numbers. And so this kind of complaint just reveals how thorough that transformation in scouting was. For the players themselves, you see it at various uh, moments uh, in time. Uh, and one of them is the literature that gets written about how to show yourself to scouts, how to perform for scouts. And so there's, not surprisingly, a kind of genre of self-help uh, for uh, aspiring professional athletes. Uh, and one of the things they point out is that you're going to be timed, for example. Every time you run the bases, somebody is going to be timing you. Uh, and so you should be self-aware of this tracking, this kind of self-tracking that, for me, echoed some of the literature on the history of Fitbits or of public scales or of ways that we're constantly quantifying our bodies and our performance historically, and then are also aware of the ways in which we're being tracked or we donate our, our self-quantification for tracking, uh, maybe to aid us in dieting or whatever our goals are. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that kind of self-awareness is, is certainly present among players who are trying to display their bodies appropriately. On the statistics side of things, one of the transitions uh, that comes about in the 1970s and 1980s 
is that players start to be aware of their own value in part through the statistics that are generated about them. And this is partly due to a transformation in statistics, but also due to a transformation in labor, which is to say in baseball in the 1970s, you get the dawning of free agency, so-called, where essentially uh, players are beholden to the team that they sign with uh, uh, initially for a certain number of years, and then they become free agents. They're able to sell their their, uh, skills, sell their body on the open market uh, for the highest bidder. And it's at this moment that this question of what their value really is or what their value should be that uh, statistics, which have long been used by teams to control how much they play players, now how much they pay players, excuse me, now can be used by the players themselves to demand uh, uh, salary uh, arbitration to kind of come into particular sorts of negotiations about their actual worth. Uh, and the history of, of salary negotiations and contracts is very, very complicated and well well more in the weeds than the average reader will probably want to go into. But suffice it to say that that, that um, awareness of your statistical performance and which measures are being kept and which are not being kept, the most famous example perhaps, is uh, that certain measures like walks traditionally were not kept. And so players didn't care about them. But then when walks started to be seen as an important value of a player's worth, all of a sudden the focus on uh, acquiring more uh, walks as a batter uh, increased. People were aware of that. For pitchers, you find the same thing with uh, saves, that there's a statistic called save about how uh, certain players will finish close games and actually uh, hold the game or save the game for their team. And before that statistic existed, there was an entirely different way to play players uh, at the end of the game, a kind of different way to use the pitchers, say. Nowadays, uh, those particular individuals who are most associated with that statistic will then demand uh, that their skill be rewarded on the basis of that particular statistic. So you see a lot of examples, but you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit uh, to really uh, suss them out. The book also deals with the rise of computing more concretely, most notably through the history of Project Scoresheet, a project started by fans that ramped up the collection of baseball data by leveraging enthusiasm and computing technology. The influence of this movement shades into a central question about how computers have changed data collection. I think there's a lot of connections. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one is in the kinds of stories we tell. So the classic story of computing and big data is that the government and the military paid for these very expensive giant machines. It was a kind of top-down top transformation uh, of data collection and processing. And that historians more recently have begun to look at the ways in which users actually drive a lot of computing, that networked computing was originally quite distributed, uh, that there were many different individuals involved, and that computers themselves uh, were driven both by kind of large governmental military purchases and by uh, much more of a kind of amateur culture. And in this sense, I wanted to kind of claim for baseball the, the label that has been given to a variety of scientific practices, everything from bird watching to baby uh, rearing, uh, which is to say this kind of data driven 
or, or uh, data-centered science. And so think about baseball in that regard. And the, the example you mentioned, Project Scoresheet, is a good one because one way of looking at it is that this corporation, Stats Inc., was the really the first to collect play-by-play data. Before the late 1980s, no play-by-play data was collected uh, or I should say it was collected in specific circumstances, but it was not widely available uh, to the public until the late 1980s. So you might have data on how many hits a player got in a game, but you didn't know where they occurred in the game reliably. You didn't know who they were occurred against. You didn't know what the situation was. Uh, and it certainly wasn't available to everyday fans or the wider public, that kind of data. And so one of the uh, sort of granddaddy's godfather's uh, heroic figures of sabermetrics, Bill James, put out an ad to collect a series of individual volunteers around the country at different stadiums to actually keep track of the play-by-play data. For this, they developed a new technology, a new kind of score sheet. They used cutting-edge technology, that is to say, uh, individual personal computers to actually gather the data together. They used modems to interconnect the data uh, to spread it to, to create a database of these play-by-play accounts and actually to make them more widely available. And so you can see this as a technology-driven uh, story, but it's very much driven as a kind of outsider, from below, volunteer-based, uh, very much not a kind of top-down structure uh, that, that really makes uh, ordinary people and their involvement with uh, data creation quite visible in this way. So I think that's that's one kind of uh, parallel story to the history of science more broadly. Another one uh, that I come back to repeatedly uh, in, as I'm thinking about the development of technology, particularly data, uh, data gathering technology in baseball, is this question that historians, and we haven't quite gotten an answer yet. In fact, I think we disagree uh, among ourselves. And that's whether the recent... Uh, rise of big data, of data storage, of data processing speed is a change of kind or simply one of degree? Are we just collecting more data and collecting it faster? Or actually are we doing something quite different with the data we collect? And the example I used for this is the, the revolution in baseball that was supposedly heralded by the development of StatCast, Major League Baseball Advanced Media's system which produces uh, something like uh, 15 petabytes of data a season. So an incredible amount of data that's produced on every ball, every player they have. Uh, they can give you the speed, the location of each individual in the game and, and, and every batted ball or every thrown ball in the game as well. And on one hand, this seems to be a qualitatively different sort of thing than simply counting out how many hits people get or how many uh, errors they make in the field. But on the other hand, the when you look closer at it, a lot of the infrastructure actually comes out of the 1980s, that the code that originally under um, undergirded the entire system was code that was developed by none other than Project Scoresheet in the 1980s for this process of recording games in a kind of very granular fashion that a lot of the human infrastructure, a lot of the people that eventually became 
uh, data casters or, or kind of data reporters later uh, got their training in an earlier era of using this data. And the structure that itself, the kind of bureaucratic structure of how you collect data, how you verify data, how you clean data, how you uh, display data, how you um, ultimately store data is all developed in this kind of much older uh, system. So those are two examples, at least, where the kinds of big, important questions we're asking as historians of science are also clearly uh, apparent in the history of baseball as well. As you've hopefully seen, this is a book that appears to address a niche interest, but really gets at pervasive questions about the relationship between science and society. There's an interesting claim Phillips makes about how his story speaks to the perils of fetishizing data at the expense of expertise at the present moment. Making more and more numbers available makes it easier for anyone to claim a number as a definitive answer to a complex problem or a meaningful challenge to expert consensus. In his New Yorker review, Louis Menon seemed to think that this lesson is the wrong one to take away from the book. Menon urged that the post-truth camp have little interest in data, and what Phillips's book really shows is how there is no resolution to the scouting and scoring distinction. I asked Phillips to reflect a little bit more about the historical lesson the book provides for debates about the value of experience and expertise versus numbers and metrics. When you fetishize numbers, when when people uh, put numbers as a kind of ultimate resolution to any question, one of the things it does is actually democratize who can use numbers and how they're used. And so uh, this, this is, yes, you can read Ted Porter, you can read any number of kind of classic examples in history of science if you're interested in this question. But for our current moment, the examples I was using are questions of, for instance, climate denial on the basis that perhaps we need to collect more data or that the data are ultimately inconclusive, or that our models are only true with a 5% type 1 error rate, or whatever your particular criticism is of that, that it actually opens the door for a kind of ignorance, or opens the door for a kind of, uh, we need more debate. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, one of the things I, I wanted to do is, is uh, bring back this role of expertise, that actually it's the... One of the lazy ways, and I'm not sure how many people actually think of it this way, but it gets portrayed sometimes in this lazy way of numbers being opposed to tradition, experience, expertise. That sort of you have these, uh, pardon the pardon the criticism, but you have these sort of 21-year-old elite college graduates coming in and telling the experts how things should be done. That's a kind of classic stereotype of what's going on here in, in baseball, but also you know across many different fields, across business and schools and policing and consulting, etc. Is that you kind of have this uh, uh, very smart but ultimately ignorant person that that comes in to upend the system. And what I really wanted to do is say that is that is misunderstanding both sides. It's misunderstanding the ways in which the human sciences, these classic subjective sciences, have long been themselves data driven. 
have long relied on quantified practices in order to make claims about the world. And at the same time, it misunderstands the level of expertise and experience that is needed to, to make any sort of numerical claim as well. So part of my pushback is that that kind of distinction that, you know, if only we had numbers, then expertise would you know triumph or that numbers are opposed to expertise. These kinds of easy distinctions just are not uh, accurate, at least when you look at the case of baseball, and I suspect more broadly. Phillips will hopefully begin to tackle some of these questions in a new context as he develops his project on statistics and medicine. One of the things I've, I've learned about myself, or for better or worse perhaps, is that I love fields that claim to be non-mathematical but end up being mathematical. And so uh, this has now been a theme of, of my particular research trajectory, and indeed my, my current project is on clinical medicine, is on making decisions in the clinic about uh, who, how peop- um, what kind of diseases people have, whether people are sick, whether they're going to get well, whether a particular drug will work, and how much of that is statistics and probability driven. And so uh, I'm currently looking into a transformation between roughly 1930 and 1970 or 1980, in which numbers and statistics become essential to clinical medicine. So they've long been essential in kind of epidemiological contexts or in context of vital statistics or public health statistics. But in this period, they become essential to how we think about our health, whether we're healthy, whether we're at risk, say, for illness, and also to how we know what works, how we know what causes diseases and what will cure diseases. And so it's another case in which, you know, in a relatively short period of time, people say mathematics is completely irrelevant to what we do, to saying we couldn't do anything without mathematical analysis. And so I think that transition is really interesting. And it's important, I think, in it to take the mathematics itself seriously, to see how the statistics develops uh, in line with and in conversation with these developments in history of medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And so to close this out, uh, I'd love if you could tell us uh, who's your team? that's a good question so uh, as as many people will say I grew up being an Atlanta Braves fan so I will never cheer against the Atlanta Braves (laughs) but being in Pittsburgh I'm I'm currently uh, learning to cheer for the underdog and 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 to cheer for the Pirates at least as a uh, as a as a chronically underperforming but nevertheless optimistic uh, team always looking to next year Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.